This is episode 17 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today we have Dr. Jamie Fisher back for part two of her interview. Uh, Last week, she discussed transitioning to the medical SLP world and how to do that the right and ethical way. So if you missed that, go back and check out episode 16 with Dr. Fisher. But this week, we're going to be discussing trach and vent patients with dysphagia. And do trachs alone cause dysphagia? Is the blue dye test accurate? And what are all the benefits of using fees with this population? Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. And I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Happy December. can't believe that this year is almost coming to a close. It's been such a great and exciting year. I'm so blessed. I'm so thankful for everything that's gone on this year. And especially grateful for all of you in this really cool Swallow Your Pride podcast. And especially to our December sponsor, uh, that is EndoHD, www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. It's a true high-definition fees imaging system. So thanks to them for sponsoring the Swallow Your Pride podcast for this month. But I would like to read another one of our iTunes reviews of the week. And this one comes to us from Kim Wardle. She is ecstatic to have this podcast. I love this podcast and have changed into a new and better clinician because of all of this evidence-based practice. The episodes are on repeat for me at the moment so I can soak up all the knowledge that Teresa brings us. Can you do a podcast about trachs and vents and dysphagia? Well, Kim, today is your lucky day. We have a great podcast episode today for you all about trachs and vents. We are back with Dr. Jamie Fisher this week for part two of her interview. And I just loved last week's episode. In case you missed it, it was all about how to transition to medical SLP the right way. However, she insists that's not the topic that she is most passionate about. So what topic are you passionate about, Jamie? Oh, I'm actually so passionate about things. I was told the other day I need to narrow things down. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. (laughs) But one topic that I'm definitely passionate about and have been, again, I kind of slipped and fell into it or kind of was pushed into it. I remember the first time to suction. And even though I had practiced and everything on a model, when it was time for me to be pushed in, I still wasn't ready. So my uh, supervisor pushed me over to the patient to suction them for the first time. So trach and vent is something that I was pushed into, but I actually love it. It's one of my favorite topics to talk about. All right. Well, good, because I know it's been a huge, huge, I don't mean to sound rude when I say this, but I get bombarded with emails about topics to talk about. And it's great. I That's why I'm doing this. But we're on like episode 10. So I mean, people, right. I'll get there with everything. But with overwhelming response, trach and vent is what people want to know more about. So right. obviously, you listen to the first half of this. And after Jamie's little session here, this does not mean you're fully trained to go work with trach and vent tomorrow. <laughs> but hopefully, this will give you a little intro to see if it might be something you do want to f- further pursue. Right, right. 
So just before we get started, I just want to go over just a little important terminology because you'll hear me kind of abbreviate some things and just kind of refer to some things. And I want to make sure that you know what we're talking about. So whenever I say trach vent, I'm talking about tracheostomies and mechanically ventilated patients. Whenever I say cuff up, I'm talking about an inflated cuff of the tracheostomy. Tomb, which is an internal balloon that surrounds the body of the trach tube. Whenever I say cuff down, that balloon is just deflated. And whenever I say speaking and swallowing valve, I'm referring to the valve that's placed on the trach, which allows for verbalization, voicing, and swallowing benefits. All so right. Just to get those terminologies out of the way. All right. Okay. So our issue number one here. Does having a trach tube by itself cause dysphagia? So if I walk in and I see that Peter's got a trach, does he automatically have dysphagia? Well, for a long time, it was definitely thought that the trach tube could cause dysphagia. I know a lot of times people thought that just by way of just having a hole in your throat, of course you can't swallow normally with a hole in your throat. Or was thought that trach tubes could do some kind of laryngeal tethering. But when research has really kind of been done on this, there's really no reliable data that directly associates dysphagia with the presence of a trach tube in and of itself. Okay. Trach tube alone is not what's going to cause uh, dysphagia. There are some effects reported though. Um, and this actually comes from the ASHA website. You can go right to the ASHA website to find this information of some of the effects of the presence of the trach tube, which can lend itself to dysphagia. So you have sometimes disorder of the AB and adductor laryngeal reflexes, desensitization of the oral pharynx and larynx, reduced effectiveness of the cough reflex, reduced subglottic air pressure, and then diffused atrophy of the laryngeal muscles. When we think about it in terms of aspiration, aspiration is not so much Again, due to the trach tube in and of itself, it's more likely due to the medical status of the patient. So again, looking at all the factors of the patient, some of those patient factors include trauma, severe pulmonary disease, advanced age, reduced functional reserve, altered mental status, and then use of medications that are used to treat these critically ill patients. So let me let me just sure. stop you there a second. So uh, the past, uh, Dr. Steele talked about it, and then Yvette talked about it in her episode also. Susan Langmore's predictors mm-hmm. of aspiration. So how important are those factors in this it, population? The same, the same. You have to look at all of those factors. Again, you're looking at the whole patient. It's not just the trach tube in and of itself. You got to look at those medical status factors of the patient when you're thinking about dysphagia and what's going to be the cause of it. All right. So definitely good, good follow up. Some good research on this is LEADER 2000. So this LEADER and Ross study, basically they just examined swallow functions in patients and they did it pre and post tracheostomy and they found no causal relationship between the tracheostomy tube itself and aspiration. So they concluded that the patients with the tracheostomy tubes, they often have those factors that we talked about earlier that is causing the dysphagia, the aspiration, more so than the presence of the tracheostomy tube itself. So again, some of those factors like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, head injury, trauma, those, again, those things we kind of talked about earlier, more so than, again, the trach tube itself being the reason for aspiration. So chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder is COPD, correct? It is. 
It is. I had someone ask me what COPD meant the other day, and I, my head about spun off. So, (laughs) (laughs) okay. And uh, Bonnie Martin Harris has actually done a lot of good work in looking at dysphagia and COPD patients. So that's some good work to look into if anyone's interested. All right. All right. So if I didn't decide to get properly trained and I went into my first day in the ventrach unit tomorrow and this guy, Peter, is laying there with a trach and I don't even avow him because he he can't eat. There's no way he can eat. He's MPO. <laughs> is that right? No, that's not right. Please. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but All you right. don't want to go in and just make some assumptions. You want right. to, first and foremost, you want to do a very thorough case history. First and foremost, you want to liaison with the respiratory therapist, with the nurse, with the MD. You want to do that before you even see the patient. And from there, again, you don't want to make the assumption that this patient just will automatically not be able to swallow just because they have a trach. That's something you definitely don't want to do. Again, you have to look at the whole patient and all the factors that they have going on. All right. All right. Well, that was good. So, I mean, to sum that up, basically just having a trach. They may very well need to be NPO. They may very well be able to eat fine, but we don't know that unless we do a full evaluation, which I think we say that about every patient. So right, now we know right. trachs are no different. So Right, right. So And and that's not to say, again, that patients that uh, have trachs don't aspirate. A large percentage of them do, and there's a lot of research studies that show that. You just can't think of it in terms, this trach tube alone is the cause of it. Awesome. Okay? Good. All right. So what about, so I hear that if I just stick some blue dye in there that, and then I see it come out, then they're, they're MPO, right? (laughs) Jamie's putting her head down in disgust that I even asked that question. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I know there are a large amount of therapists out there doing this and I've, was one of those therapists that definitely that in my training, when I first started out many, 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 many years ago, was one of the things that I was taught to do and that I did. So the blue dye test is using blue dye with food or liquid presentations and then suctioning via the trach to see if you get back any blue dye or any blue anything. So this is supposed to be an indication of aspiration if you get this back. So again, I did this with patients for years, but this is where we as therapists, we really have to do some research. We have to keep up with the research. Again, continuing education, continued readings. We have to do our due diligence to stay up with the times. And so after doing some research and doing some reading and wanting to move towards being more evidence-based, what I found was with blue dye testing, the reliability of the testing is not very good. Reports of 50% false negative error rates for detection of aspiration have been found. If you look at an article by Nancy Swigger, she does a good job of covering the research studies that show this. Something else with the blue dye test is it, it doesn't account for penetration at all unless it's aspirated. So the patient could actually be penetrating, but you don't know it because you won't find out unless it makes it below the level of the vocal folds to be aspirated. So again, dysphagia, when you think about it, is not just aspiration. It's really not just penetration. It's a whole lot of other things, but you're not getting information about penetration. And in addition to dysphagia being a whole lot of other things, 
besides penetration and aspiration. This test does not tell you anything about the biomechanical pathophysiology of the swallow. In other words, you don't know what's the reason for the swallow impairment if they do aspirate. So if you do get it back, what did you really find out? So I love the percentage. It's 50%. Exactly. So let's do a test where we just flip a coin. Yeah, I mean, totally. <laughs> and when you think about your practice and becoming more effective, becoming being an adequate therapist, do you really want to be out there doing something that's 50% accurate, 50% false negative error rate? Is that really yeah. what we want to be doing with our time as well? Yeah. So you might as well just give the patient a coin and have them flip it. And that's the treatment plan we're exactly, going with. Exactly, so. exactly. And again, think about yourself. Would you want <laughs> to be treated yeah. in that manner? Would you want your doctor treating you that way? You got to think about those things. So are doing an assessment on you that's only 50% accurate. And that's supposed to be the assessment to decide your course of treatment. So again, think about those things. Yeah, There was a systematic review. Out that's the latest research in the 2016 Dysphagia Journal, which was a systematic review of six studies on blue dye testing. And the sensitivity just varied so widely. And it basically indicated that it's unreliable in detecting oral pharyngeal aspiration. So overall, it can't be supported as best clinical practice. All right. Some other people that do a really good job of covering this topic. Karen Scheffler, she has a blog on swallowstudies.com about this. Nancy Swicker does a good job. And on our SAS website, we have a Research Tuesday blog post that talks about the gamble of blue dye testing. So those are some other resources you can look at. All right. And, and all those will be in the show notes. You can go to swallowyourpridepodcast.com and all of Jamie's wonderful notes here will be in, in the show notes. So, all right. So the the big take home is the blue dye test is just, I know everyone loves when I say this, wildly inaccurate. <laughs> yes. In, in my opinion, and based on the research, I would not use the blue dye testing to assess for dysphagia. In my opinion, and based on the research, it shouldn't be used. Well, mostly because the blue dye test is not a swallow assessment. And I'm going to say that one more time for the people in the back. There we go. There we go. <laughs> As I say from time <laughs> to time, the blue dye test is not a swallow. Good friend Jennifer Bill is back there clapping her hands, too, because she works a lot with treatment patients. And we have had this conversation before. It's not a swallow test. You need to get an instrumental test if you suspect dysphagia. It's something that's reliable, that's evidence-based. So get a modified barium swallow study or uh, a fees for your patient. If you suspect that there's dysphagia, get a reliable evidence-based practice assessment. All right. Okay. So now we get to talk about our favorite thing. So fees. So why do you think fees is the way to go with this population? So I do have a preference with this population for fees, but let me throw in my disclaimer to also say modified is good too. I don't want people to think we're poo-pooing on modifieds because we're not. Right. Modifieds are good too if you have access to modifieds. Again, whatever your access is, just make sure you advocate for an instrumental period. Okay. So, but with that said, my preference for this population is for fees. And there are several reasons why. First and foremost, everybody should know that fees is an instrumental assessment that looks at the pharyngeal swallow. It can identify safety and efficiency of the swallow. 
with penetration and aspiration can tell you when and where and why it happened. We can look at the pull links, swallow delays, premature spillage, residues, secretions. And again, it's an evidence-based practice assessment. So that's really why we want to be using it with any of our patients, but definitely with this population. Langamore, of course, is the mother of fees, and she actually did a recent article in the Dysphagia Journal that covers the history and the future of fees as an evidence-based practice. So if you get a chance, make sure to check that out. Specifically, fees with this population is because it can be done anywhere, specifically in the patient's room. With trach vent patients, especially if they're hooked up to machines and hooked up to all different kinds of things, transport down to radiology is not always optimal. It's just not. Sometimes we need to go right at bedside and do what needs to be done. And fees allows us to do this without having to do the whole transport. I had a patient last week. I don't know if I like should say this or not, but I'm going to. So <laughs> I, I had to I had to do a fees on this guy last week, and I mean he was extremely extremely obese, uh-huh, and uh-huh. this teeny teeny tiny room, and he had probably every tube, every machine hooked up to him. And I, the only place for me to go to get the test done, I had to stand on his bedside table to get the fees done. I have been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But we got it done. And I just like was thinking to myself, I'm like, there is no way in that this man would ever be able to start a diet. And the other way is if I didn't put on my like monkey gymnastic suit and get up on this bedside table and get this done for him. But I, I was pretty <laughs> proud of myself that I, <laughs> that I got that creative and I didn't just say, oh, sorry, you're SOL. So. Right, right. And uh, one thing I love about fees, we get it done with fees, no matter the situation. <laughs> No matter the patient sometimes, no matter the awkward awkward ways we have to adjust and turn or even climb up into bed, we get it done. Yeah, yeah. The, the doctor came in and he was like, I cannot believe you are up there doing it. I was like, do you not want me to do it? And he's like, all, all the kudos in the world to you, girl. I mean, he was he couldn't have been more happy that we got it done. And I just think that shows a lot for our profession when we do mm-hmm. pull out cool tricks like that. So Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Another good thing about doing fees with this population and with any population, no exposure to radiation. Uh, You can also do the assessment as long as you need. With these patients being compromised respiration-wise, fatigue is definitely a factor. Work of breathing is a factor. And sometimes it just takes them a little longer. My dad had very, very severe COPD. And I can remember him telling me, Jamie, you just don't understand how much effort it takes for me to just pick up a spoon and put it to my mouth sometimes. Like you just don't understand how hard it is for me to breathe in between taking these bites. And it wasn't until then that I really, really realized how kind of difficult it was for him respiration-wise. He was very, very compromised respiration-wise. So When we're in that situation, doing a modified, you know, sometimes you're in there and depending on who your PA is, they're like, come on, let's get it done. Let's get it done. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. With these with these types of patients, they may need a little bit more time. So not only may they need a little bit more time, they will need a little bit more time. So with this test, it allows you to kind of do things as long as needed and can assess for any fatigue factors that may happen. Um, uh, Also. What I like about this test, you can assess and see direct effects of having the speaking valve on and having the speaking valve off. Let me back you up just a second. So what is the purpose of the speaking valve? What does it do physiologically? 
So the speaking valve and the swallowing valves allows restoration of a couple of things. It allows restoration of subglottic air pressure and of the cough reflex. It allows restoration of voicing. There's a lot of great benefits of the speaking and swallowing valve that you can look and find out about not only on the Passimura website, but also on the airway website of the Shekinah speaking valve. So if you look up Google Passimura speaking valve as well as the Shekinah speaking valve, they both list some great benefits of their speaking valves and what they do. But for quick purposes, again, like I said, the subglottic air pressure being restored, cough reflex being restored, voicing being restored with the use of the speaking and swallowing valve. So definitely for swallowing, we need that cough reflex. We need a good cough reflex if food and liquid should be penetrated or aspiration. Uh, Another thing that I forgot to mention real quick is your sensations being restored as well. So you get a lot of good benefits from the speaking and swallowing valve being on. So it's not just that thing sitting in the red cup next to the bed for no reason. It actually has a physiological purpose. It does. And there's a lot of good research behind the speaking valves. Again, go to Passy Muir, go to the Shekinah Speaking Valve website, as well as the Shiley as well. I'm not here to promote any valves. I'm not affiliated with any of them. I tell people, look at all three and really look at their website. They've got some great information about what their valves do. And I've seen them in practice. They work, they have research behind them, and they're great treatment tools. Awesome. All right. I remember when I used to do home health and you just walk in and the patient's wife would just say, I don't know, he has this purple thing in the red jar next to his bed. I don't know if he's supposed to wear it or not, but he doesn't wear it when he's swallowing. And it's like, oh my gosh, yes, yes, please put it on. Right, right. And for the most part, I want my patients to have that valve on. I want them to have that valve on because of all the great benefits you do get from wearing the speaking valve. However, There are some instances where there are patients that, uh, for whatever the reason, uh, whether they are not tolerating it, but if they're not tolerating what I will say is we want to figure out why they're not tolerating it. We want to consult with somebody and figure out what's going on, why they're not tolerating it. But to switch back, there are some patients that, for whatever reason, just don't like to wear the valve. And if they don't like to wear the valve, is it possible for them to still swallow effectively without wearing the valve? And so the only way to know that is to do an instrumental assessment. What I've learned in the eight plus years that I've been working with treatment patients is just because a patient does not have the speaking swallowing valve in place, it does not mean that their swallow is impaired. I can honestly say I've worked with patients that swallow just fine without the speaking or swallowing valve in place. And this has been confirmed by a modified or a fees. And again, this isn't all the patients. There are Patients that definitely do better with the speaking swallowing valve in place. And then there are those that even with the benefits of the speaking and swallowing valve that we talked about earlier in place, they still have the dysphagia. So what I want people to really, really think and know is each patient's going to be different. So make sure that you're doing things on a case-by-case basis. Make sure that you're considering all of the aforementioned factors that we talked about, consulting with your respiratory therapist, your MDs considering what we know about breathing and swallowing coordination, get a thorough case history, consider the patient's current status, and then make sure you're utilizing those evidence-based approaches 
which include getting an instrumental assessment such as a fees. Oh, and I think you raised the point that I was going to raise about the importance of the interdisciplinary care with yes. the respiratory therapist. Yes. I think these are, so just to clarify, if you're not used to working with vents or trachs, it's not really your job to run the trials of tolerating it, not tolerating it. That's what the respiratory therapist will do in conjunction with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we work very, 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 very closely with respiratory therapists. And I can remember somebody on Facebook had posted something about the respiratory therapist placed the valve. Oh, my goodness. They placed the valve and they're working with the speaking valve and they're placing <laughs> the valve. And I was the first thing I thought was, OK, that is within their scope of practice to do so, because the speaking and swallowing valve is not only a speaking and swallowing valve, but it can help. To if they're placing it in line, it can help them to wean off of the ventilator and it helps them to wean towards capping trials as well. It's kind of like an in-between step. So they very it's very much within their scope of practice to place the valve. Now, if they get in there and they start working on communication with right. the valve, if they get in there and they start working on dysphagia with our treating, you know, swallow impairments with the valve, then that's something a little different. <laughs> right, 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 right. So, but it's very much within their scope of practice to place the valve, to work with the valve, to help for the, like I said, the different purposes. We work collaboratively with them. We work very, we tell them what we know about communication and dysphagia. They tell us what they know about respiration status. We cannot do one without the other. We have to work together with that. So let's talk about some pharyngeal laryngeal factors here. Okay. So in addition to assessing fatigue factors, you get a lot of bonus factors with specifically using fees for this population. One of those bonus factors that I like to talk about, especially in my trach vent course, is you get to view the pharyngeal or pharyngeal, however you want to say it, and the laryngeal or laryngeal, however you want to say it, depending on if you're from north or south, I guess. <laughs> But you get to view those actual structures with fees. You get to view it in color. You get to see the tissue. You get to see if there's any swelling, if there's any edema of those structures. You get to see all of that. You get to see if there's any pathology, because sometimes you look in there and there is a pathology going on. You get to see all of that right in front of you and in color. So that's one of the good bonuses of doing fees, in addition to being able to assess the swallow. Another bonus is that you get to view airway patency. And airway patency is so very important to know about in the trach vent population. You get to see if there's airflow through those vocal cords or if there's not airflow through those vocal folds. If those vocal folds are in just kind of sitting in the ADD duction position. So that's what you get to see with uh, fees. You get to see if there is airway patency or if there's not airway patency. Another bonus, you get to view those secretions and secretion management. And secretions are very, very important to know about in this population because secretions can affect a lot of different things. And how the patients are managing those secretions is very important. So you get to see that directly on a fees. Another thing that I really, really like about fees Again, you can do the test for as long as you need to. So you can view the effects of the speaking and swallowing valve. So you can show the patient how they are performing 
with the use of the speaking valve, or if you have a patient that so many of us sometimes have that for whatever reason, maybe they don't like wearing the speaking valve. They don't want to wear the speaking valve. They fight you on it, even though you're telling them, please wear this speaking valve. (laughs) You get so many benefits from it. You just do. Um, (laughs) But you get the bonus of being able to view the effects with the speaking valve on directly. I have had a patient, and I actually used this case study in my treatment course, where the patient starts off with the speaking valve off because they do not like to wear it. They just don't. So we start the study with the speaking valve off. And of course, they penetrate and they aspirate. And I tell them to cough. And of course, for this patient, they cannot cough. They cannot get enough air up to the level of the vocal folds. For this patient, the cuff was inflated and uh, they were not able to make that cough reflex. So what we did was we told the patient, okay, look, look at what's going on on the actual screen. We had them look at the screen and we told them to cough and they couldn't do that cough. So what we did was we deflated the cuff, had the cuff down, and then we placed the speaking valve on. And then we told them to do a really good cough. And right there on the screen, they were able to see how they could not only cough, but they were able to clear the penetration and aspiration. Yeah. So. That was a wonderful bonus of fees, of being able to get that feedback right then and there. I'm going to stop my friend, Dr. Fisher, there for just a moment. If your facility is looking to purchase a new fees unit because of some of the benefits of fees that we've discussed here in this episode, please check out NDOHD, that's www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. That's www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. And they are the December sponsor of the Swallow Your Pride podcast. And they have a true high-definition fees imaging system, very easy-to-operate fees equipment, compact fees system with a maneuverable design that provides convenience to do fees in more locations in the hospital, such as the ICU, CCU, PICU, exam room, patient room. So please check them out, www.ndohd.com forward slash contact to discuss your specific fees requirements, pricing, or to request a live product demonstration. All right. So why, this is one piece I always love to go into, but why should we advocate for instrumentals with our trach vent patients? You definitely need to do this with your trach vent patients. A number one, again, you don't have x-ray vision or x-ray glasses. There's only so much you can do from a bedside. We all know that we've talked about it from the several podcasts before. And everybody, I agree with what everybody has said before me. We have to be able to know exactly what's going on. And we cannot know that without an instrumental assessment. It's kind of like when you ask a PT to do therapy or MD to do surgery without having an x-ray. Like, We have to know beforehand so that we can do a good job at providing treatment. We just don't want to go in here doing this blindly, especially not with this medically compromised population of those who have respiratory issues and have tracheostomies and are ventilator dependent. Another reason why we definitely want to advocate is because, again, as people have said at bedside, Patients can seem fine sometimes when in all actuality, they might be silently penetrating or aspirating. And again, we cannot know this without an instrumental assessment. There have been several studies done that show that trach patients, high rates of aspiration, and that a lot of those 
that do aspirate are silent aspirators. So knowing that information and knowing those research studies that kind of show that, we definitely want to get instrumental. We don't want to take chances with these patients that are already critically ill and already are medically compromised. So go ahead and know for the assurance of yourself and your patients. Go ahead and get and advocate for what you need, which is an instrumental. Advocate for it. I'm feeling kind of defeated this week and I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be honest and get real. And I didn't really plan on going here, but I've gotten so many crappy emails and messages this week about when we're going to talk about the real world and when we're going to stop talking about <laughs> instrumentals. And I just, it's not going to happen. So if you're waiting for us to talk about why you don't need them, then I don't know that this is the podcast for you because we're probably not going to. And it's very evidence-based as well. And I think if we go back to our putting our family members, going into our family members' shoes, would you want your dad who's laying there critically ill on a vet and a trach to just, with a wing and a prayer, have him start eating? No, you want to know for sure. You want to have an instrumental done and know for sure. And I just... I. I, I, I'm really, like I said, feeling a little defeated by the amount of pushback that people have given me about when we're going to stop harping on this. And I think that's horrible for our profession because that's not the way that we're going. You know, we know so much more now, so I don't think we can can step back and say that we don't know this information now. Right, right. Well, what I will say to that, I'm so glad that you and several others, myself, that we are kind of pushing this thing along and kind of taking the stance of we're not going to stop talking about this. Nothing changes until somebody takes a stand and says, we're not going for it anymore. Like it's something I believe advice is. If we as SLPs keep acquiescing and just going with the flow of things, things will not change. So we really have to take a stand and say, we need to do what's not only evidence-based, but best practice for our patients. And so that we can be providing the, again, the best services that we can. So no, we're going to have to take a stand. In real world or not, you have to take a stand. I know myself, and I'll just say this, there are places where I have resigned from because I was not able to get what I needed to do an effective job, whether that was an instrumental exam, whether that was some type of treatment protocol or whatever I needed to do my job, or if I saw that ethically things just weren't going the way that they should, I have resigned from that place. And true enough, a lot of people will say, well, I have my livelihood to think of. I have, you know, maybe you have children, maybe you have a family. I have to think about me. Well, at the same time, you have to think about your patients. When you took your ASHA sees, your state licensure, I'm going to go back to that again. You said that you were going to do what was necessary to provide adequate assessment and treatment for your patient. And all of that falls in that. It truly, truly does. So sometimes you have to do what you have to do. You have to advocate, 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 demand, demand, demand. And if your facility can't do what needs to be done, it's time to start looking at other places sometimes. Sometimes that's what you have to do. And I know that's easier said than done. I absolutely know that's easier said than done. But sometimes it has to be done. All right. So I'm not going to give up then. Don't give up. All right. Don't give up. (laughs) All right. So let's let's kind of wrap this whole trach vent little little intro ditty here. So just some final take homes about trach vent. So again, just know that the trach tubes themselves they're not going to be 
the cause of dysphagia themselves. So we have to look at the whole patient and the other medical factors that are at play. When we think about the blue dye test, just repeat this to yourself and think about me saying it <laughs> one more time for the people in the back that the blue dye test <laughs> is not a swallow assessment. Go ahead right. and opt for a more objective, reliable instrumental testing. Fees are modified. Go ahead. Either one. We give you the power. Right. Again, my preference for this population is for fees because of the many bonus benefits that we discussed earlier. Continue to advocate, advocate, advocate for your patients to get those instrumental testing so that you can provide optimal and effective services for, again, these medically compromised patients. An oldie but goodie review, an overview of dysphagia treatment populations was covered in a resource by SIG13. It included some information by Rita Bailey, Susan Brady, and Deborah Suter. It's in the, again, the SIG13 perspectives on swallowing and swallowing disorder. And I believe I provided that. Yep, I'll stick that reference in the yeah, that resource for you guys. And overall, just keep reading and be on the lookout for the latest research and evidence-based practice with this population. Again, things are changing so rapidly with dysphagia and with treatment and with our field just every day. The things that we were doing 10 years ago can become obsolete within a second. So keep reading, keep doing your research and applying the research. Right. And and be on the lookout for Jamie's trach and vet course hands-on. You're not going to find it online. You actually have to go to Nashville and you see do. her to do it, but you get to yeah. actually put a speaking valve on a dummy and all sorts of cool things. So as soon as she yeah. knows more information, we'll pass that along too. So. Yes. And it's a fun course. It's a really, really good group. And I'll, I'll say this too. We keep our groups pretty small. It's 32. And then we further divide the groups into 16. And then we further divide the groups into groups of four. And then we further divide you into groups of two and then one-on-one -on -one to where you can get some one-on-one -on -one training. So we keep things really, really small. The course tends to fill up fast. So again, because we keep it at a small number. So be on the lookout for it. We would love to have you. We'd love to have a good time. And we're just looking forward to, I'm just looking forward to helping people to get more knowledge about treatment patients and with communication and dysphagia. Yeah, I'm looking forward to taking it too. So yes, come on down. Yeah, come on down to Nashville. Oh, I, you know, I love my, <laughs> my Nashville friends. Uh -huh. so. All right. So final question here, Miss Jamie. Yes, ma'am. What is an uh, article, study, treatment strategy, person who has been the biggest game changer in your practice? I knew you were going to ask me that. And I was trying to prepare myself for that. But there, <laughs> Teresa, there's entirely too many to name. Like I said, when I kind of expanded over to this side, I read so much. I just read, 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 read. And just from doing a PhD, I have learned yeah. to read a lot anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I'm constantly, constantly reading. There are absolutely too many to name. What I will say is a lot of the studies that have changed my practice, definitely all of that blue dye stuff is just a great example of it. So look at all of those resources I have provided. Steve Leader has been great and wonderful. And the research that he has done, as well as Deb Souter, there are a lot of them. There are names are like escaping me right now, but there are so many that have done work with dysphagia overall that have really, really shaped and kind of changed my practice. I just want to say shout out to Bonnie Martin Harris and all her shout work. Shout out to Bonnie Martin Harris. I know one thing that has stuck with me and this stays in my head all the time. 
And this kind of happened very recently at the 2017 Dysphagia Research Society Conference. And it was Dr. Steele, who actually just did a podcast with you. So I was kind of excited to kind of hear her speak in your podcast. But at DRS, she uh, said something that just has stuck with me. It was very practical. She said something to the effect of too often, SLPs are making decisions based on SLP comfort rather than making decisions based on actual patient ability. And just thinking about that and thinking about the decisions that I have made starting from the beginning of my career to now, and thinking about SLPs that are practicing, thinking about SLPs that, you know, comment on the board, and just thinking about our profession overall, making decisions based on our comfort level versus decisions based off of actual patient ability. And when you hear people say, you know, real world stuff, and let's just go ahead and make some decisions based on what I'm comfortable with versus getting an actual modified, which is going to show the actual patient's ability, it just makes you think. It makes you think, how are we actually practicing? Are we practicing based on comfort or based on actual patient ability? So once she said that, I said, you know what, light bulb, light bulb, I need to share. So definitely we need to do like Dr. Steele said and make our decisions based on patient ability. And the only way that we can really do that is I'm going to circle it back around and say by getting an instrumental assessment. We want to make sure that in our practice that we are making those decisions and basing our treatment plan and doing accurate (laughs) treatment and not just throwing any kind of a treatment at whatever because we don't actually know what we're targeting because we're doing it based off of our comfort and what we think instead of the actual patient's ability. Again, get that instrumental so that we know what those impairments are so that we're targeting the accurate thing for our treatment. So that's just one thing that kind of stuck with me that's, you know... Yeah, I think I think Ed advice, I think in episode one said that too. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to stop doing things based on our comfort, Mm -hmm. but rather based on science and the evidence that we actually have. And, you know, I know I kind of got into it with someone on Facebook this past weekend. It ruined my Saturday a little more than I'd like to to admit, but (laughs) (laughs) it it was she said something like she would never recommend an instrumental for an 80 year old person with dementia. Mm -hmm. And I just saw that was the the worst statement I've ever heard because that's like 90% of the people that I scope, mm-hmm. you know, and, and just because you're 80 and you have dementia doesn't mean you totally lose your ability to swallow and, and doesn't mean you totally lose your right that's to true. eat. And, and so just because she didn't feel comfortable with it, she didn't even bother to talk to the family or talk to the patient to see if this is something they want to pursue. If they don't want to pursue, that's one thing, but you didn't even exactly. ask. You just wrote it off because you didn't feel comfortable and you didn't even give them a chance. And, and it, it really ruined my Saturday. Yeah. So <laughs> Don't let things like that ruin your Saturday, Teresa. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Well, don't write our patients off and it won't. Exactly. So. Exactly. Yeah. So, all right. Well, thank you, Dr. Fisher. No problem. No problem at all. This was fun. <laughs> good, good. Any closing thoughts? No closing thoughts except for definitely, again, if you're thinking about transitioning, expanding your scope of practice, make sure to do it the right way. If you'd like to work with trach and vent patients and you're thinking about it, or if you are currently working with trach and vent patients, uh, please contact me. I never mind answering questions at all. I'm very, very happy to help. 
if you are on the Facebook boards asking questions, don't stop asking questions. We don't want to discourage you from asking questions, but we do want you to be smart about your questions and we want you to be competent when you practice. So again, it's kind of like Teresa said, whatever feedback that you do get, just be open to it, whatever it is, but don't stop asking your questions either. So we're, we're pretty happy to help. I know I'm always happy to help because someone had to help me. So. Yeah, yeah, I've I've gotten so so much help, so yeah. much help. I think that's how we're gonna learn. And as long as everyone stays open minded and doesn't get cruddy and crappy <laughs> and mean, then right. then we're gonna go places. Right. In this and field, I still so. have mentors to this day. To this day, I Absolutely. still have mentors. There are people that I still email and ask questions. And I've been at this ten plus years now. But you never stop learning. You never stop growing. And again, things change so fast. And you have to kind of change with it, depending on what the research says. So again, that I will always have mentors. I never mind being supervised if I still need to be supervised. So whatever needs to be done for my patients to receive adequate and the most optimal service, that's what I'm going to do. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll close on that. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.